The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Laura Bacha. She is the CEO and Executive Director of the Organic Trade Association, which is an umbrella organization uniting more than 7,000 member companies across the entire supply chain, promoting and protecting today's $39 billion and growing organic industry. She brings 20 years of direct experience as a certified organic producer and handler and more than 10 years of hands-on experience in the private sector of the organic industry. Ms. Bacha is a member of the Agricultural Policy Advisory Committee appointed by USDA and the U.S. Trade Representative's Office and a member of USDA's Advisory Committee on Biotechnology and 21st Century Agriculture. So welcome, Ms. Bacha. It's great to have you with me. Thanks, Melinda. I'm thrilled to be here. I heard your presentation to the National Press Foundation. There were about 20 journalists in attendance, and the focus was food from farm to table. And I thought you did such a terrific job explaining what organic really is, busting some myths, and setting the record straight that I thought I'd have you come on the show and tell us a little bit more about organic. So why don't you tell us, how did you get involved with organics? I originally got involved with organic farming back in 1990 in Santa Cruz, California, with a job actually working on an organic produce farm back in the early days. So that would have been right around the time that the federal law governing organic production was being passed, you know, a good 12 years in advance of the federal regulation that operates organic certification currently. So, you know, on the ground farming and you get the bug and I've been working with organic food and farming ever since then from operating my own business as a producer and a handler growing and processing through the private sector side and industry, and now sort of on the advocacy side with the trade association. I hear what you're saying because as a registered dietitian, I can tell you that once you learn about the benefits of organic food and farming, it's really impossible to go back. At least that's been my understanding. It's been my experience that once I saw the benefits to soil and water protection and public health, I could not advocate for anything else. So, and you know, or from, imagine another way to do it, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And yeah. I think that from a consumer's perspective, really, that label is our best guarantee in knowing what we have. You know, I don't have to be an interrogator and ask my farmer a gazillion questions. I see that organic certification. I know what it means. So, why don't you tell us what that organic certification means? Sure, and I think that's exactly it in terms of the value, you know, as you described, we all would like to know exactly personally, intimately where all of our food comes from and have that direct relationship with the farmer all the time. And the times when we do, that's fantastic. But we also all live sort of in in a busy life where we're scrambling to pack children's lunches and get a meal on the table. And so our choices for food are varied in multiple experiences. And what the organic seal, what that green seal shows you is that there's a 
a number of things. Number one is there's a set of practices that are codified to protect water resources, soil, plant life, animal life around the farm, and farm workers working on the farms. And the least toxic, most effective biological controls for pests on the farm, the best animal husbandry. And so all those requirements for how the farm operates are codified. And then as those ingredients from the farm move through the system, there's, again, a whole set of requirements about how food can be manufactured and processed. And I think that's one of the least understood parts of the organic standards that people often forget. You know, we hear in the news that major companies moving away from colors or artificial sweeteners in a product. Any food product that's labeled as organic, colors, artificial colors are prohibited, artificial flavors are prohibited, artificial sweeteners are prohibited. There's a very short list of food processing aids that can be used in organic foods as compared to conventional foods. And so the manufacturers have to adhere to this strict set of requirements. And then, of course, the labeling so that it's clear and consistent when you're out there shopping. But sort of overlaying all that, one of the most unique things about organic is that everybody that enters into that system is opting into some pretty stringent oversight through their certification and all the documentation that they have to provide to their certifier and verification of complying with the standards, but also to be subject to inspections every year, unannounced inspections at any time, testing of products randomly to make sure there aren't inadvertent or intentional contaminants in the products. So it's about how the food is grown on the farm, how it's made into food, and how that traceability and guarantee and oversight can be brought all the way to the marketplace. So all of that is behind that seal when you see it on a product. Mm -hmm. And I, for one, especially appreciate the fact that there are third-party independent inspectors so that the consumer can trust that label knowing that the farm and the processing is indeed being inspected. Yeah, and, you know, that happens all over the world, not just in the United States. So any product that you buy in a grocery store in the United States that's labeled an organic, regardless of where some ingredients may come from, for example, coffee, you know, there's very little coffee production in the United States. It's the largest traded organic commodity. But if a crop is grown overseas, whether it's Mexico, Bolivia, Ethiopia, and it comes into the United States as organic, it's certified to that same program and subject to the same oversight. So that's a pretty far-reaching, rigorous system, and there is no other global food oversight that gets anywhere close to reaching the level of organic. You know, in fact, in some of our work that we do in in Washington to support organic, we've been engaging with the Food and Drug Administration on their food safety regulations that are coming on board, and they're trying to stand up a program that has some global implications, and they have some oversight requirements for imports that they have yet to fully stand up. And one of the things that they were quite interested in speaking with us about is how does organic do this? Because organic is the only food regulation that's operating globally like that with an inspection program on the ground in foreign countries. So that's how you do it. You've got inspectors in those countries that know the U.S. regulations so that the U.S. consumer can be sure, even if the product is coming from overseas, that it meets those U.S. specifications. Is that correct? 
That's correct. Okay. Absolutely. Great. Because that is one of the questions I hear from consumers when they say, well, I don't know about that USDA organic label. You know, it's coming from overseas. And I do explain to them that there are certifiers making sure it meets USDA specifications. However, you know what that often tells me, too, is that if we are having to import organic foods, that tells me that we have lots of room for growth within the United States to increase organic production. Yeah, I completely agree with you about that, Melinda. You know, interestingly, just this spring, we published the first report analyzing the trade data showing export of organic products out of the United States and imports of organic products into the United States because I think it's a big topic of conversation, an area of concern, and we wanted to start by, like, what's really going on. If you look at it, you have to group the import categories into a few areas. One are products that are not commonly grown in the United States because of climactic regional Right. Geography. That would be coffee, bananas, and that kind of thing. Right. So, you know, we have an amazing appetite for certified organic coffee. It's a great thing. It's better for the coffee workers. Right. It's better for the bees and the butterflies in the soil and everything. So keep drinking your organic coffee. That's going to come from all over the world. That's never going to change, right? Right. Then there are sort of a group of products that are imported into the United States, so a couple of them in the top ten category that are things that we do grow in the United States, but the grocery store system is built to provide year-round availability of those products. Apples is the best example. So interestingly, in season, in North America, when we're producing apples, it's one of our top export products for organic. And then off-season, counter-seasonally, it's one of our top imported products for organic. And that's how grocery stores maintain apples year-round sort of a staple item for Mm -hmm. people to choose. So the data really shows this up and down graph around season and then counter-seasonal supply for imports. So that's sort of one category where the imports, in a way, support the market for the domestic growers in season. Yeah. But then there's a third category, and I think the most common examples there in the top 10 imported products are corn and soybeans. primarily in the area of livestock feed, for example. And those are increasingly being imported into the United States and certainly could be grown in the United States. And, you know, we see that category of products as like a help-wanted sign for farmers in the United States to take advantage of the opportunity in organic and convert their farms and enter the marketplace. It has great premiums and great returns as well as all the other derivative well-being Mm-hmm. That's a fascinating point because years ago I had been to a Healthcare Without Harm conference, and at that conference there was discussion about how we could bring more sustainable foods into the healthcare setting. And with regard to livestock, of course, you know, we didn't want antibiotics, we didn't want hormones, and that certainly fits with the USDA organic definition. However, where the livestock producers got tripped up was in the non-GMO feed. And I think that if we could expand our non-GMO grain production, we would be ahead of the game in terms of increasing certified organic livestock. But you tell me if I'm interpreting that correctly. Well, I think that's a piece of what it takes to transition land in terms of growing the livestock feed. Yeah. And certainly it's an important piece of it. But 
there are a whole lot of things that a farmer has to change about their farm in addition to the step away from genetically modified seed to non-genetically modified seed. The movement away from the chemical application is a tremendous step change for the farmer. And the building of the soil fertility and building a cropping system with rotations so that you don't are not growing the same crop time over time. So it's a step on the road, but there are actually a whole lot more things that a farmer has to change about their farm and may need to learn new farming techniques to get there. But I do think that the, certainly that market for the non-GMO products in the interim is a way to create some incentives mm-hmm. um, for growers to shift that way. The data shows that that transition period, that the land has to be under organic management for three years before the crop can be sold as organic. That's But that's sort of the toughest period for a farmer in the transition because once you make it through the transition and you have the market premiums from organic and your soil fertility has been built up over time and you've learned new farming techniques, the profitability is there, the productivity is there, the yields are there. But in that three-year transition period, oftentimes growers are having to take acres out of production for cover crops. They're having to manage through reduced yield on the mm-hmm. crops because the soil fertility hasn't come on yet. Maybe increased pests because they're still working through that transition period. And so profitability can and in many cases does dip in that three-year period. So anything we could do to support farmers getting through that is good for everybody, I think. That's really interesting. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Ms. Laura Bacha. She is the CEO and Executive Director of the Organic Trade Association, which is an umbrella organization that unites more than 7,000 member companies across the entire supply chain, promoting and protecting today's $39 billion and growing organic industry. And I emphasize growing because despite the difficulties that farmers have to make to to get through that transitional period, and I'm really glad you brought those up because that is a, a real concern for farmers in making the switch or making the decision to make the switch. But we see a growing consumer base for this. And I just printed off the Hartman report, the Hartman Group, is a trend-tracking marketing association, and they see where consumers are going with regard to their purchasing habits. And they did a report, I'm sure you're familiar with it, the Natural and Organic Report, but they found that 73% of U.S. adult consumers are buying organics, and we can only anticipate that that's going to grow. Why do they do it? Well, they have one core organic user, and I am among them, and I absolutely understand their responses. Is I eat organic to avoid chemicals, pesticides, and herbicides to support farmers who take the extra steps for integrity to produce food organically and in the long run protect the environment. So all yes. of the above and more. Yes. So – Tell me something with regard to marketplace confusion now, because this is a place where I struggle a lot. I think that by design, supermarkets have put natural and organic under the same umbrella when really nothing could be farther from the truth. And so when you were speaking to the journalists, I'm wondering if any of these consumer confusion points came up. I'd like for you to address the difference between natural and organic, and also talk a little bit about what the journalists brought to the table at the press conference. Sure. Well, I think 
the differences are great. I think one of the biggest challenges and so one of the biggest drivers of the confusion on the part of the public and the shopper around natural and organic is that natural as a word has sort of an inherent meaning to us, right? We, right. You know, you may not know the details, but you think you, you know, you think you're going to recognize it when you see it and you think you kind of know what that must mean, right? Right. Because it's common vocabulary that we grow up with. Organic is essentially, you know, a signifier that's applied. It's not part of the common vocabulary growing up where you, you, you kind of think you know, you can relate to it. So I think that there's an evocativeness to just the word natural that ends up for shoppers to sort of assume things about a product that's labeled natural that may or may not be there. Mm-hmm. Um, the facts of it are, with the exception of some meat products, there is no regulatory definition for natural. Mm-hmm. So there's no requirement. That doesn't mean that some companies don't have their own definitions and programs and produce products that would sort of pass the smell test for natural, right? If you actually looked at the ingredients and the limited ingredients in the product and the limited processing in the product upon investigation, you might come to the conclusion for yourself that, in fact, oh, that isn't that to me is a natural product, right? But just the word on a package can't tell you that right? because there's no common definition for it. So I think that's where shoppers get tripped up. And I think that intuitively shoppers think, oh, to me a natural product means it's kinder and gentler to the environment. So therefore, the worst of those nasty chemicals probably can't be applied. Right. Well, in fact, that's just not the truth. There's no requirement mm-hmm. about how the food is grown. Typically, natural on a product in the marketplace is more likely to apply to the manufacturing process for the product or the additives. And even there, there's no regulatory definition. So I think, really, the much safer assumption for the shopper is if it's not labeled organic, then it is grown with synthetic toxic chemicals, et cetera. Because those are the choices, really. Yeah. And there's not going to be a product in the marketplace that isn't labeled as organic that has gone through all those steps to avoid the chemical application in, in the growing and production of the food and the raising of the livestock. So that's the biggest thing for the shopper. Not only are there no rules about what it means, there's no check, external third-party check on the system. Right. Now, when you were speaking to the journalists, were you surprised by some of their questions about what they thought their readers wanted to know? I'm not sure I, I took away much about what they thought their readers wanted to know. You know, I think more so sort of what their perceptions might be. And I think, again, there was a range of, of views. And I think... There is still, amongst the public, and I think it was reflected in some of the questions, still a level of disbelief that you could actually trust a seal like that in the marketplace. Yeah. Because, and rightly so, I think as consumers sort of buyer beware, right, and we're we're used to things not being what they appear to be. So Mm -hmm. I I think that there's a, a layer of that that still exists there and understanding the distinguishing factors and understanding sort of what the requirements are and are not. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's healthy to have some skepticism, but I think once you scratch beneath the, that skepticism and you really do your homework, 
we can see just how much we can trust that organic seal. Yeah, and and I think that's really an interesting thing because I think the as Americans we have to be skeptical, uh-huh. and but I think that there is a point where we. Uh, bring that skepticism to everywhere where we simply can't allow ourselves to trust something. Yeah. So, you know, there's also the view that the more you know, the more it's not quite good enough. And I think one of the things that concerns me about the perceptions amongst the most educated public and the most educated journalists is that then once you understand everything that organic offers, you want to go to another place and somehow it ends up in a way almost a desire to kind of discount organic because the organic regulations don't cover everything. Right. Um, and so there's a view that we just simply like to pick at things for them not to be good enough, quite frankly, you yeah. know, and I think that just lacks the perspective of recognizing everything that's behind that seal and such hard work and what it means, what it means to get there. Right. You know, I heard Jim Riddle, he's a farmer from Minnesota, speak about these regulations and just this very point, you know, where people were picking apart the label. And he said, look, we fought for everything this label has, and we have to stay active and involved to protect it. Is it perfect? No, we can always make improvements. But what I like to tell consumers, and I think Jim does too, and probably yourself, is that it's the best we've got. Absolutely. But, but we have to pay attention and make sure it stays that way. We can't just rest on our laurels, right? Yeah, and we also like, you know, one of the things I like to think about is we hear this notion of beyond organic. Well, this is beyond organic. Yeah. And my view on that is that in order to be beyond organic, you have to be organic first. Yeah, that's great. You don't get to not be organic and be beyond organic <laughs> that's at the right. same time. I agree with you. Let's talk a little bit about GMO labeling because I think that in addition to the natural label, there's also a lot of confusion around GMO labeling. And so we've got products that have labels that say they're non-GMO, and then we've got products that say they're organic, and I think there's some confusion there. So the first thing I want to make sure our listeners understand is that the organic label, by its very definition, means non-GMO. Correct. If a product is labeled as organic, it is non-GMO. Non-GMO. And a whole lot more. And a whole lot more. That's right. So how are we going to talk to consumers about how are we going to help them know that? Yeah, I mean, that's it's a big public education effort, and I think rightly so the consumer is attuned to the debate about, about GMOs. There have been the ballot initiative, yeah. the state labeling, and a lot of good conversation and a lot of real desire to know what's in your food. And again, it's not dissimilar to the discussion about natural in that the one attribute GMOs that have risen to the surface, and that's part of the organic package, and people may have sort of hopscotched over completely understanding what organic means and grabbed onto a attribute. So I think part of that is public education and retailer education, but as an industry, we're working on an initiative to try to find a way through the Department of Agriculture administered programs where industry can pull some funds together to invest in a public education campaign because that's one thing that this industry hasn't done and there is the seal as a common brand across the board mm-hmm. um, for organic and the Department of Agriculture is the regulator, uh, arbiter of the seal and compliance, and but they're never going to be the 
educator and promoter and cheerleader for the SEAL. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just not going to happen. And so we're looking at some potential options for the industry to, to pool funds together to invest in that so that it's a common education message to the public. You know, we our data on the consumer market data shows that over a third of the shoppers who report purchasing organic have been buying organic for less than two years, very new to the marketplace. Yeah. And they're young, and that's not going to change. So there's going to be, a, you know, a third of the consumers that are in that early stage learning mm-hmm. around organic. But that's going to happen year over year, so it's not really ever going to be enough to, edu- you know, we're not going to be able to say, okay, done, you know, wipe our hands, put the apron away, our education job is done. Right. Yeah. Well, we've just got a few minutes left, and I want to give you an opportunity. I've, been, I've had the luxury of asking you all the questions. Is there anything that you want our listeners to know about organic? You know, I, I think the thing I want listeners to know about organic is that it's accessible to you. And everybody has to manage their household budgets in a way that they can make work. But there are creative ways and sensible ways for any household to incorporate organic into their diet by focusing on cooking and accessibility and in-season and the types of products that you choose. So I think what I would want your listeners to know is that organic is not just for certain segments of the population. It, it, it truly can be accessible to everyone, and it's becoming more and more accessible. So I think for me that's a important message I would want to send to folks. And then I think the other thing is that this comes out of the discussions we had at the press event that you were referencing, Melinda, is that this whole conversation about feeding the world and can organic feed the world or not is in many ways, if you take a step back, just uh, almost a confounding conversation. Why are we even having that conversation? And I don't mean it in any way to minimize folks around the world struggling to feed themselves. But the roots of poverty are so complex and beyond yields and productivity at the farm level. They're about strife and conflict and civil war, and they're about poverty and education and access to food and food waste. So that this debate about the production system, whether or not it's GMO or organic, And the idea that that is the debate that is going to determine whether or not we as a people can feed the world is when you dig into it, it just doesn't hold water. We should all care about feeding the world, but there are much more important places to focus our energy than that debate in terms of feeding the world. I really appreciate that. And I think that telling a different narrative and taking the narratives that we've been given and taking them apart a little bit and having a new set of questions may be just the ticket that we need. And I want to thank you. We've been speaking with Ms. Laura Bacha. She is the CEO and Executive Director of the Organic Trade Association, bringing with her 20 years of direct experience as a certified organic producer and handler and more than 10 years of hands-on experience in the private sector. So what we want to do is take our listeners to the Organic Trade Association website. It's very easy. It's www.ota.com. 
We'll provide that link where you can find out many more aspects of organics beyond what we've been talking about today. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much, Ms. Baja, for spending time with us. Thank you, Melinda. It's my pleasure. 